Second reading this morning is First um, John chapter 1. Hear the word of God. I'm reading from the NIV. It's in your bulletin, by the way. Uh, and there are these nice pencils back there. They're very long. Okay, unlike the little, they're like the little stubs in your um, in your pews. These are the these are the better pencils if you want to keep notes along the way. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at with our hands and have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from Him and declare to you, God is light. In Him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with Him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and uh, do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you have the words of life. You are the eternal word of life. You are the word that was spoken at the beginning which brought this world into being and into order. You are the word that was spoken at Mount Sinai giving a program and an order to the people of God you had set apart for yourself. You are the Word of God who appeared in the flesh and laid down your life so that we could be redeemed and reunited with the Father. We honor you. You have the words of life, and so we gather here this morning to hear a word from you. And we pray this morning that by the power of the Holy Spirit, which inspired Scripture and caused it to be written down, that that same Holy Spirit would soften our hearts and open our ears and enable us to see and hear and receive what it is that you would have us know. Give us ears to hear this morning. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this is the second week in a series of sermons. Uh, I'm working uh, through the book of First John and we are working through this book uh, in counterpoint with uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So we're all familiar with uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the so-called love chapter. And um, in the book of 1 John, we have, the, uh, we have more appearances of the word love than anywhere else uh, 
perverse or per capita than anywhere else uh, in all of Scripture. In a lot of ways, First uh, John is a book about the love of God. Uh, and I wanted to talk about uh, the love of God as it's revealed in First John um, in relationship to what we see in First Corinthians chapter 13. Last week, we talked about three kinds of love. We talked about God's love for us. We talked about our love for God, and then we talked about the resulting love that we have for one another. So God's love for us is revealed in self-sacrifice. It is a self-giving love. Um, You you all know that there are four words for love uh, in Greek. Only two of them appear in the New Testament. Uh, the, uh, the, the, The idea of romantic or erotic love does not appear in Scripture uh, the primary uh, New Testament understanding of love is this word uh, agape, which is this self-giving, sacrificial love. God demonstrates this love by laying down his life uh, for unworthy people. All right, So God loves us first, and then we love him in response, and then in working out our love for God, we end up loving the community that we've been put into. All right, So if you want to demonstrate your love for God... Uh, the way that you do it is you actually love those people that are sitting around you in your pews. Okay? You can't say that you love God if you hate your brother. If you're not taking care of the person, uh, the people here uh, in this sanctuary, we can't say that we love God. All right? So God's self-giving love to us is mirrored in our self-giving love toward toward one another. Love is patient is the, the piece of 1 Corinthians 13 that we talked about uh, last week. Um, and this week we're going to talk about the, the next little chunk, love is kind. So what I want to do now is just sort of step through uh, 1 John chapter 1. Uh, and if you have it open there, uh, you know, either in the Bibles that you bring from home and, and are able to mark up, uh, or uh, the Uh, In the bulletin, it would be helpful because I want you to see the structure of the argument that John lays uh, out here. As we mentioned last week, John, of course, is the Apostle John. Uh, Scripture describes him as uh, the one whom Jesus loved. He seemed to have had a very special relationship uh, with Jesus. He's the only apostle who was not martyred. He lived to be an old man. He was what we would call a bishop uh, of the churches uh, in Turkey. And he writes this letter to the church. So this is a letter from a bishop to his church. Sometimes scripture uh, speaks to people who are not part of the people of God. Okay, either to condemn them or to invite them to become part of the people of God. Sometimes, sometimes the Bible kind of preaches to the lost uh, and invites them in. Other times the Bible uh, is a conversation within the family of God. And so this is an internal, uh, in the family of God kind of conversation. Uh, the message of 1 John is not really for the world, it's for us. It's for us as the church, the separated uh, community. Um, there is a structure to this book, uh, and I want you to see some of the themes, um, which is why, uh, at least in my mind, it's good to have it there in front of you and to have it visually. So let me just read through this uh, little by little, and we'll offer some glosses as we go along. John begins uh, this way, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, the we there, of course, is 
probably the royal we. He's referring to himself, but it might also mean him and the other apostles, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of God and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. So John's an apostle, and the apostle is one who brings a message to people, and the message that John has brought here, the testimony that he is bringing, and by the way, Ruth, thank you for bringing your testimony. I think it's really important for us. You know, so we, you know, we read the testimonies of the apostles in scripture, but the work of God with his people doesn't end with the closing of the canon. All right. God continued to work with the people of God, which is why it's important for us to have testimonies like yours, um, this morning. So John is testifying to what? What is it that John is testifying to here? What does he say about, about what he's testifying to? Well, it's what I've heard. It's what I've seen. It's what I've touched. It's a first-hand testimony. He's not reporting something that someone else told him. He's reporting to us what he saw firsthand and which he touched. He heard it, he saw it, and he touched it. Alright? So, and, 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 uh, this is his testimony. This is his preachment. The subsequent work of the church is always simply to repeat the testimony of the apostles. Alright, that's all we do. The apostles have given us a deposit of faith. Okay, the apostles spent those three and a half years or three years with Jesus. They saw the death and they saw the resurrection. They met the resurrected Christ. And they, they had the message and they then began to testify to that. They, they were the ones who saw it with their eyes and heard it with their ears and touched it with their hands. It's important, uh, that these people touched the resurrected Jesus. Okay? Jesus wasn't a ghost when he was resurrected. This wasn't a spiritual resurrection. It was a bodily resurrection. A dead man, uh, stopped being a dead man. Alright? And there were a number of people who had seen this and touched it. And they're telling other people. All right. The work of the church is to continue to repeat that deposit of faith that the apostles ha- have given us. Uh, it is the testimony of John to what he has seen firsthand. Now, before I became a pastor, um, I taught philosophy uh, at a Catholic uh, school in Pittsburgh, at a Catholic college in Pittsburgh, and. Uh, sometimes people think of the Christian faith as a kind of philosophy. So, as someone who is trained as a philosopher, let me tell you, it ain't. Okay? The Christian faith is not a philosophy. Okay? Philosophy is derived uh, by reason alone from first principles. It's sort of like mathematics, where we can figure these things out alone uh, just by the operation of our mind. Notice what Paul is bearing witness to. He's bearing witness to what we would call historical facts. It's what I saw. It's what I heard. It's, it's what I touched. All right? This is not the kind of stuff that philosophers deal with. 
right? He's reporting like a newspaper man, um, and he's reporting these concrete details. This is not a philosophical principle that he is discussing and has arrived at certain truths regarding. And, and I mention this because there are a number of Christians who get themselves kind of twisted sideways when they want to bring in philosophy into the faith. Now, I think we need to bring intellect into the faith. I think as Christians, we need to be the smartest people in the room. We need to be trained. We need to understand what's going on. But we need to understand the distinction between a philosophical system and a report about historical facts that happened. All right. So what happens is, is that people will come in with certain philosophical principles. I don't, you know, whatever principle you have, and then they approach, they approach the what the Bible says, and they're like, well, you know, the Bible is kind of little, is 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 a little squirrelier and a little fuzzier than my philosophical system, and so I've got to compress the gospel to fit into my box. And what you end up doing is you end up well, you end up with a partial gospel. Okay? I want to lift up the example of Marcion. Some of you know the name Marcion and Marcionism. Very early example of someone who called himself a Christian, who decided to truncate the witness of the apostles. Okay, so Marcion, he's living in the first and in the second century, And he decides kind of philosophically, you know, that God of the Old Testament, that mean God who was always going around smiting people, well, he's not the real God because we've got Jesus and look how nice Jesus is. And so what he does is Marcion severs the Old Testament from the New Testament. And all those reports about the Old Testament God, well, that's about a demiurge. And what in fact happens with Jesus is that the real God, the big God, the high God uh, revealed himself in Jesus and we need to leave that Old Testament behind. Alright? It's an old heresy. And let me tell you folks, it comes up in every generation. In every generation, there will be those who want to split the Bible and want to split the witness of the Word of God and want to split what it is uh, that the apostles have said... Don't fall for it. What takes you down that path is a philosophical system. There's some idea that's in your mind and it's the high great idea and you try to make the whole thing conform to this one idea that you have. Well, it won't. Okay, because reality is squirrelier and more complicated than any philosophical system you 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 come up with. So we don't want to go down the Marcion uh, uh, Marcion's path where we separate out part of of the uh, the testimony uh, of the apostles. The gospel is about historical facts, things that actually happen to real people, and it's not about philosophical principles. It's about anecdotes and about Reporting. Now, what I want to draw your attention to is what's the goal of this testifying? Ruth comes to us this morning and testifies to what God has been doing in her life. Okay, Ruth's been a Christian for a very long time, which is an interesting thing uh Uh, to experience. Those of you who were new in your faith, it it could be interesting to talk with people who've been Christians for a very long time. 
Okay, because as as you were saying, you know, there there are good times and there are bad times, and our relationship to God isn't contingent upon those times. He kind of carries us through all of those times, right? So th- there's a, there's a testimony in that, and your great hope is is that the day that He calls you home, you're gonna you finally get to see Him face to face, right? So this this is the this is the testimony of her uh, of her life. Why is it that she's brought this testimony? I mean, we took time out of our morning to give an elder in this church space to bring her testimony. Well, we do it, well, one, to bring honor and glory to God, but also to build uh, what's called the fellowship. What I, here's, here's what I want you to notice. Look down in verse 3, chapter 1, verse 3. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. Okay, Ruth has proclaimed to us what she's seen and heard in her life. So that you may have fellowship with us. Some of you know what that word is there. This is the koinonia word. This is one of these fundamental Christian words, koinonia. It appears in this passage one, two, three, four times. Koinonia, uh, it means fellowship, but it, in some sense it, it could be another word for the church. The koinonia, the fellowship. You could call the church the fellowship. So John is reporting uh, to the church what he's seen from the beginning, what he's touched, what he's heard, because uh, so that they will have fellowship with him. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, is how the rest of that sentence goes. And then in the next verse... We write this to make our, yours and my, joy complete. Our lives in the church should be joyful lives. And the joy that we have uh, in the church is a joy of communion, of being linked to one another. All right, There's like nothing more miserable than being at odds with people. I mean, some people seem to like it. I don't know. Some people like always like to fight. I don't quite understand it. Uh, but, you know, part of the joy of life, those of you who are married, you've had this experience. There are times in your marriage when you are battling with your spouse, tell the truth. And there are times in your marriage when things are really sweet. Okay, And that sweetness, that fellowship is what we need to be striving for. And it's what we need to be striving for in the church And it doesn't happen by itself. Why doesn't it happen by itself? Well, because we're selfish people. We're bullheaded people. All right. Where does the fellowship, where does the koinonia lie? What's the source of the koinonia here? Well, it's the testimony. I'm telling you these things so that you can have fellowship with me. And I have fellowship with the Father. Remember who's talking here. This is John. This is John who saw Jesus on the cross. This is John who spent three years. This is John who's lying against Jesus' chest at the Last Supper. This is a very special man. He has a very special relationship with Jesus. And he wants us to have that relationship with him. How is that going to happen? Well, by sharing the testimony. All right. The possibility of unity in the church is only there when there is a common t- 
teaching of the church. The church doesn't teach just anything. And let me say this too. The world is always making up a new lie every day. There's always a new lie. Endless. 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 Inventiveness. What is it that Calvin said? The heart is a factory of idols. Okay, we're always making up something to compete with what God has to say. Our unity in the body of Christ is that we stand on this common, ancient witness of these people who knew Jesus personally and who testified to just what they saw, to what they heard. All right, Our unity, our fellowship is a doctrinal fellowship. Now when we were in that denomination that we used to be part of, whose name will not be named, one of their mantras was, theology divides and mission unites. In other words, it doesn't matter what we believe, we'll just work together anyway. It actually doesn't work. If you don't believe the same thing, you're not pulling in the same direction. Okay, Our unity is a doctrinal Unity, okay? And, and, and the doctrine that we teach is not anything fancy. It's just what it is that the apostles taught, uh, uh way back, uh, from, from the beginning. So we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. Now let me jump down to verse five because here we get a little, uh, well this is interesting because we get Jesus coming in here. This is the message we, John and the Apostles, or John the Royal John, we have heard from him, Jesus, and declare to you, God is light and in him there is no darkness. Okay, so Jesus ends up being the source of John's message. You know, as Christians, we are Trinitarian, we believe that that God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we believe that those three persons are equally ancient. Okay, they're all from everlasting. It isn't that, you know, first it was God the Father, you know, Yahweh, and then at Christmas, then we had Jesus, and then at Pentecost, we finally got the Holy Spirit. That's not what the Bible teaches. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are eternally co-present. All right? Before the creation of the world, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are present. I don't know what they were doing. They were having a good time. All right, They were enjoying each other's company and then they created the world. How did they create the world? Well, the second person of the Trinity, who we call Jesus, is the Word of God and He speaks the world into creation. All right, And then, and then God decides to reveal Himself to His people and the Word of God comes to the prophets. Who's that speaking? Well, that's Jesus speaking. And then, and then we have the greatest of all prophets, Moses, uh, bringing the law down from Mount Sinai. Well, who spoke that law onto those tablets? Well, that's Jesus. That's the Word of God. Alright? It's the same Word of God from Genesis to Revelation. And the unity uh, of that Word of God we call Jesus. He is the incarnation. When He, when He came uh, in the flesh, He is the incarnation of the Word of God. This is the message that we heard from Him. Jesus is the one who's speaking for God, right? 
All right? Which is why we can't get past Jesus. We don't supersede Jesus. All right? We just need to be careful about this. And when we're reading our Old Testament scriptures, we need to hear the voice of Christ in the Old Testament. Okay? Jesus is speaking through Moses. Jesus is speaking through Amos. Jesus is speaking through Isaiah. It's the same word of God. There's a unity in the word of God. And we have received this message from Christ. And the message is that God is light and in him there is no darkness. Alright, that's, we're not, that, that's a philosophical question. We're not going to head down that. But I, I just want to lob that one out there to you. If we claim to have fellowship with Christ or with God and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. Next week we're going to talk a little bit about the sin lives of Christians. Alright, this is going to be an important sermon for you to hear because, uh, <clears throat> I think we have some confusion about this, all right? Uh, as a Reformed church, we teach that uh, Christians continue to sin, that we're not sinless, all right? Now, if you come out of the holiness tradition, uh, they would argue that it's possible to become sinless. Reformed Christians, uh, you know, w- we believe that we continue to sin throughout our lives, but there's a, pro- there's a process by which we become uh, more and more, more and more sanctified. So next week we're going to talk about, well, what do we do about the sin in our lives now that we've been converted? All right? We need to be born again because we have sin in our lives. But once we've been born again, we need to continue this process of rooting out uh, sin in our lives. And the first little hint that we have of it here is there in verse 6. If we claim to have fellowship with God and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. Okay, so this, this should be a, this should be a shot across the bow for those of us who are being careless about the sanctification in our lives. Okay, I mean, I do believe that Jesus is Death on a cross covers my sin, but I don't want to become careless about the sin in my life and say, well, I can just walk in the darkness because, you know, I've got the blood of Christ to cover me. Okay, we don't, don't want to go down that path. We'll talk about that more fully uh, next week. Now, I've said a number of times from this pulpit that there are two main things that the Bible teaches. One is that it teaches us who God is, and the other thing is that it teaches us who we are. Verses 5, 6, and 7 are about who God is. The core of that is God is light. Verses 8, 9, and 10 are about who we are. Let me read those. These are familiar ones. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make God out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Okay, so... The reason that we need a church, by the way, is because we've got sinners. Uh, I am glad that Ruth began her testimony uh, by stating the, the, the most fundamental truth uh, that we need to know, that I'm a sinner saved by grace. Okay, People who are not sinners are not saved because they don't need to be saved. Now, what the Bible teaches is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and so all need salvation. 
All right, But the only path to salvation is recognizing that I'm a sinner. It's the first step, and it's the hard step, by the way. Okay, Because like, we don't want to say that you know, I'm a sinner. That's kind of like a little uncomfortable. But it is the first step. Those of you uh, who are in 12-step programs or who have been involved in 12-step programs, you know that confessing your sins, telling the truth about yourself, is essential to the recovery process. There comes a time with someone who's going through AA where they just kind of come clean and they tell everything that they've ever done uh, to their sponsor, right? So we we do that ourselves. We confess our sins ourselves, and God has promised to uh, forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, I want to very quickly turn... I'm watching that clock, John. I want to quickly turn our attention to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 13 again. So... First John is going to be showing us the love of God. And it's going to be calling us to reflect that love in our lives. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we have a, a very dense um, crystallization of what that nature of this agape love is. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dis honor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. That litany, by the way, if you want a description of what a Christian character would look like, it would be that litany. Okay. If you want to elect a Christian official, look for someone who embodies that litany. If you want to marry a Christian person, look for someone who uh, embodies that litany of character. These are character traits, right? Okay, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs, it has nothing to do with romantic love, this is not eros, this isn't sexual love, this is about, this is Christian love, this is, this is agape. So this, I want to talk about this love is kind, um, one, because it's actually rather interesting. This word kind that shows up here, it's the only place in the New Testament that this word shows up, which might be surprising because we use the word kind all of the time. Kresteuetai, uh, if you want the Greek on that, uh, is the word that's translated there. The root of that word is to be um, helpful. To be willing to help. Love is willing to help. Think about that. Sometimes, you know, so you think, well, I'm a kind person. I don't know, I don't know how you think about this, but the, 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 the love that we are being called to is actually useful to somebody. We're actually going to help somebody. We're going to be, we're willing to help. Let me offer a few other places in the New Testament where we get at this idea of helpfulness as part of Christian love. Luke 6, 35. This is Jesus speaking. But love your enemies. Do good to them. It is love. It's got nothing to do about feelings. It's about what you do. Do good to them. Lend them without expecting to get anything back. Think about that one. Uh, then your reward will be great and you will be the, uh, the children of the Most High because the Most High is kind. Who's he kind to? To the ungrateful and the wicked. 
Okay, so our Christian love mirrors God's love for us. Okay, God's love for us is a love that is given to ungrateful, wicked people. It's kind, it does good for us. We're to do the same thing. Romans 2, 4, the Apostle Paul speaking. Do, or, or do you show contempt for the riches, riches of God's kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. Paul's talking here about, you know, uh, 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 God's willingness to hold off on judgment. I mean, God could just smite us today if he wanted to. But he chooses not to. He's gonna give, he's gonna give us some more time to work this stuff out, right? And, and Paul's saying don't take advantage of his patience. Uh, it, it, this is his kindness. Uh, Ephesians 4.32, be kind and compassionate to each other, forgiving each other just as Christ, in Christ God forgave us. Okay? So Christian love is a mirror of God's love, uh, of God's love for us. God's love for us is kind. It does good for us. It does, it, 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 it serves us even when we are ungrateful and when we're wicked, which is a signal that we need uh, to be loving other people who are ungrateful and wicked too. All right? I mean, it's easy to love people who are nice, right? But we're actually called to love people who are not nice. We're called to be kind to people who don't necessarily thank you for it. I think this is the harder, this is the harder calling. Let us pray. Father God, we uh, thank you for your word. We thank you for sending Jesus into this world. Lord Jesus, we, uh, we worship you and we honor you this day and we pray that, uh, your word would, would, uh, take root in our heart. And we do pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.